This episode of Ministry Monday is sponsored by GIA Publications. Rooted in tradition with a clear focus on the future, Gather 4th Edition from GIA Publications features a diverse roster of composers and a wide breadth of musical styles in a worthy hardbound hymnal. Gather 4th Edition. Learn more at giamusic.com forward slash hymnals. From NPM, the National Association of Pastoral Musicians, this is episode 207 of Ministry Monday. Ministry Monday is a weekly podcast about music, ministry, and liturgy, produced by the National Association of Pastoral Musicians, or NPM. What is NPM? NPM is a national association that fosters the art of musical liturgy. The members of NPM serve the Catholic Church in the United States as musicians, clergy, liturgists, and other leaders of prayer. For more information, go to npm.org forward slash join. Have a question? Email us anytime at ministrymonday at npm.org. Hello, and welcome to Ministry Monday. I am your host, Amanda Bruce. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to Ministry Monday wherever you listen to podcasts each week. And hey, thanks for joining us today. Many of our listeners at Ministry Monday are pastoral ministers, whether that's in music, liturgy, religious education, or other facets of the parish life at large. But today's focus is religious education. The early days of our faith formation are so critical and are an absolutely vital part of our church, its legacy, and its future all at once. Not unlike the needs of other ministries, religious education continues to change and evolve in hopes to meet youth where they are and gain a sense of belonging and presence as they grow into their baptized roles as disciples. Today, we speak to Holly Moore, Director of Religious Education at Mary Queen of Peace Parish. Holly shares the way that religious education has transformed from a solely CCD mentality into the call to encounter Christ as the mission for faith formation. We also speak at length about the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, a Montessori-based religious education model growing and already established in the United States today. Today on Ministry Monday, I'm speaking with Holly Moore. Hi, Holly. How are you? Doing well. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Thank you for chatting with us on Ministry Monday today. Thanks so much for having me back. Yeah, so I'm having you back. We've we've been able to chat about, let's see, two different topics in the past of Ministry Monday. We talked about, um, if I remember correctly, prayerful ways for engagement during Advent, if I remember correctly. Sounds and right. then and then we spoke about, um, oh, holy women, holy power. Yes. Women in the church, one of my favorite episodes to this day. Did you know that we, we've replayed that one quite a bit, actually? I didn't know. That's exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's an excellent one. I highly recommend it if you haven't listened to it yet. So uh, today we are here to talk about religious education. So if someone's just listening to this episode and they don't know, can you share what you currently do as your full-time employment and also just as a minister of the church? 
Yeah, sure. So um, officially director of religious education for the past 10 years. Um, and that has meant lots of different things in the particular parish where I minister. So uh, I think a lot of people automatically hear, you know, children when they hear director of religious education, which is certainly a part of it. Uh, but I think a, a trend in the Catholic Church in the U.S. and, and probably beyond as well um, is to really reconsider what we mean by religious education in terms of trying to form disciples, trying to uh, accompany people in their journey through life and their really significant um, moments of engagement with the church and engagement in their lives. So religious education in our parish has had more of a more of a womb to tomb feel, not completely, there are certainly gaps, but definitely more of a sense of accompanying at different life stages, more than simply uh, a children's religious ed program. Though I believe we will be talking about children primarily today, right? We will, we will, but I'd love to, to just hear a little bit more about some of the ways that you are supporting people and walks through life. Can you give oh, an sure. example or two on that? Sure, sure. Um, so one of the things that we do that I think is really significant is, is forming small discipleship groups. So people of different ages, you know, young adults get together around you know, 20s and 30s year olds, um, women's groups. We have small discipleship groups for racial justice, people that are interested in, uh, in learning more about how to promote racial justice in their, in their own context, as well as to um, make real change and examine what that means as a Christian, um, as well as meeting again in, in groups of different ages or different different life events. And in those sorts of groups, um, the, the idea is to create spaces for encountering Christ in maybe a more intimate way than we do normally, as well as encountering one another on a deeper level, which of course brings us closer to Christ and to our deeper selves. So those spaces are about um, reading scripture together in ways that are both contextual and, and also lived and learning together, acting together. Um, speaking of young adults, then we have a, a young adult ministry which does all sorts of things together, together that are meant to be intentional discipleship sorts of experiences. So again, scripture studies, um, justice work, charity work, um, social gatherings, ways of kind of building community together in a way that isn't, isn't just being together for no reason, but being together in order to, um, to have that kind of deeper encounter and, and transformational experiences. Of course, there's RCIA with people coming into the church, adults coming into the church. Um, there are different sorts of adult education opportunities, baptism seminars, um, lots of lots of different ways to kind of meet people on the continuum of life. Mm -hmm. It definitely sounds to me and to those who are listening, bear with me. This could be easily my, my naivete, but it definitely sounds to me like the role and the lens from which religious education is considered has really shifted in the last, oh, I don't know, I'd say 30-ish years. Do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that that's accurate. Um, and, and by the same token, though, it's not entirely something new. I think it's, it's really attempting to take a look at our earliest sources of what was happening 
in church as far back to the Acts of the Apostles, right? I mean, we read that the Acts of the Apostles, they, they broke bread together and said the prayers together. Those were like the main things. So how can we create communities that meet people at all different stages of life where they can come together to meaningfully pray and, and break bread to know one another, to make change in the world. So um, looking at then how we do our programming so that they're not just programs to check off, but really um, entrances or, or doors into a, a more meaningful life that can be shared together. I think you, you touch on something right now that you just said, which is very meaningful religious education. Mm -hmm. um, before we started recording, I mentioned to you that, of course, well, one of the things we're going to speak about today is religious ed education in youth. Um, and so I, you know, of course, I was sharing with you that some of my loved ones, my siblings, my husband um, had a traditional CCD experience, if that makes sense, where they went to a public school and they participated in a once weekly or semi-regularly class as a group, probably in the evenings, maybe on a Sunday afternoon or something like that, where they would sit in a classroom setting, learn about religion, and then kind of leave. <laughs> Is that still a model that's still being used across the United States? So to some extent, yes, that is a model that that's still used. And typically, you know, we kind of refer to that as like traditional CCD, even though, you know, what's the tradition? It's been the tradition in the last 50 <laughs> years, but you know, for the whole, the whole of church history. But right. um, but but yeah, there that does still exist to some extent. Um, but there's definitely a shift happening again through throughout the US and, and probably throughout the world too, to um again, looking at why we do the things we do and if what we're doing aligns with our values and the outcomes that we're really hoping for. So um, there are definite shifts toward different kinds of models of religious education. So some parishes do um, family catechesis, which incorporates whole intergenerational groups of people into the experiences of religious ed. Um, some places do catechesis of the Good Shepherd, which I think we'll talk about today. Um, some places do some kind of hybrid or, or online classes as well. Um, and, and I think, you know, that, that traditional CCD model can be effective, um, but, but there are ways that, that maybe it's challenging as well, because one of the, one of the main things that um, religious educators have been talking about for many years now is, do we really want our, our religious education, or you know, even that terminology is interesting, or faith formation, do we want that to be the same thing same kind of thing as what school is, or is there really kind of a problem with seeing it as being the same sort of thing as school is? On the one hand, you know, we certainly want our, we call them students even, right? We want our students to, um, to have substantial experiences. We want them to get substantive content. We wanna teach them something that's true. But on the other hand, um, we, we say that primarily we're attempting to, again, cultivate disciples, people, people on a way, on a path, people who are encountering and choosing relationship with Christ and with one another. And um, relationship with Christ is not the same thing 
as teaching subjects, right? And so, I mean, it seems to me as I'm saying these things, probably it's important to have some level of, of both of those things happening, right? How do we how do we create space for encounter? And then how do we also provide um, the substance to learn more about this tradition that we exist within? Because really, formation is multifaceted, right? There's that relational component with Christ. And then there's the sense of also being born into a tradition that has a lot of things that you need to learn and understand to participate fully. So, um, so I think the hope is, is to do both, to have a sense of not necessarily both in terms of programming, but both in terms of um, introduction to a way of life, encounter with the person of Christ, and then also a, a space to, to learn and to grow in a way that is uh, intellectually stimulating as well as good for the heart and, and soul as well. I think that's a great place to transition into the topic, the main topic I wanted to talk with you about today in the realm of religious education, which is something called catechesis of the good shepherd. So if someone's listening and they've never heard of that before, how did, what is catechesis of the good shepherd and how did it come about? Yeah, catechesis of the good shepherd is uh, a religious formation, religious education formation model that was developed in Rome initially in the 50s, I believe 1954, um, by two women, Sofia Cavalletti and Gianna Gobi. And interestingly, uh, Sofia Cavalletti was a scripture scholar and Gianna Gobi was a Montessori teacher who actually studied directly under Maria Montessori. So she was a very firm Montessorian. And together they ended up coming to this way of forming children that was uh, very much based on Montessori methodology, this, this sense that we can trust the child to help construct their own learning and knowledge base if we as adults provide a carefully prepared setting so that we can give them choices that are appropriate to their age, appropriate to their developmental stage, um, and, and also lots of respect for the child as well as respect for the adult, um, and sort of creating, creating these spaces, again, that are very much child-centered, appropriate for the child. So that's what Montessorians do. And then the idea of this being a religious education program is adding that dimension that this isn't just um, a space and a program that is geared around children's developmental needs, um, but also that it's sacred space. So how do you create a sacred space that's also developmentally appropriate? Um, and so the way, the way Catechesis of the Good Shepherd kind of goes is it is, um, a very hands-on program. So just like in a Montessori classroom where you have materials and, and works, they're called, um, there are different sorts of stations with materials in a, in a catechesis of the Good Shepherd space. And, and the idea there is in fact very Benedictine, this idea of work and prayer together, that the child receives a presentation from an adult. And then from that presentation, the child is invited to make a response and then to choose the child's own work from carefully prepared materials and, and spaces. And um, so in that way, interestingly, it becomes very substantive because the materials um, 
mimic the materials that you would see in liturgy, as well as materials and, and uh, parables that you hear about in scripture. So everything that happens in a catechesis of the Good Shepherd setting pertains to liturgy or scripture, and everything that happens also has a dimension for the child to do their own work. So work and prayer. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that then. What is the setting in which the catechesis of the Good Shepherd takes place most often? Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's always called an atrium. And the reason the setting is called an atrium um, also interestingly harkens back to the early church. So in the early church, uh, catechumens, people who were coming into the church, who were sort of studying and living the life to become a Christian before they were fully admitted into the whole rhythm of church life, before they were fully admitted into um, the worship space, there was a special space for them right off of the worship space where they would slowly be instructed in the rhythm of the life of the church. And so even though, of course, the children who come to us in Catechism of the Good Shepherd are part of the life of the church, right? They're almost always baptized children, though they don't have to be. We have had unbaptized children in the atrium. Um, this is still a sense of, this is kind of their, uh, their lab space, their space to grow and to explore before they are completely conversant with the life of the church, and that this space will intentionally guide them into um, a, a fuller understanding of what it means to participate in liturgy and to enter into scripture and to be that kind of full disciple. You mentioned materials in liturgy that are present in an atrium. What are some of the materials that we would see there? Yeah, so um, usually an atrium space is, again, uh, a sacred space. So it looks more, it looks more like almost almost like a church space than it does like a classroom though again it does bear a very good resemblance or a very close resemblance to a Montessori classroom insofar as there are these materials so generally in an atrium half the space approximately is dedicated to liturgical objects and then half the space is dedicated to scriptural objects so in the liturgy section um, especially in say level one for three to six year olds you'll see um, a model altar You'll see a model ambo. Um, you will see everything you need to prepare the altar, altar cloth, palette, uh, chalice, pattern. Um, you'll see a sanctuary lamp and a miniature tabernacle with a lock. And uh, so the children learn you know, all the names of all those objects. They know how to set it. They know um, why to reverence what's happening within mass because they see it all the time in the atrium. Um, you'll see a, a wooden liturgical calendar with all of the appropriate colors and all the appropriate notations for what happens in the calendar year. And it's a puzzle. So they take it apart and they put it back together and they learn how all the pieces of the year kind of fit together and what they mean. Um, you'll see vestments, uh, which also, you know, of course, have the liturgical colors. So that teaches both about who a priest is, as well as our liturgical year and, and what these colors are for. Um, on the scriptural side, you'll see things like dioramas from different parables. So you'll see uh, figures for you know, the pearl of great price. You'll see different sorts of materials for the mustard seed, which in fact 
the actual mustard seeds from the Holy Land, little known fact, um, you can't get them here. You have to get them from the Holy Land because the ones we have here are way bigger than actual mustard seeds. So if you really? go to the store and get like a mustard seed, that's not what the scripture is talking about. The, oh. one, the ones from the Holy Land um, are like as small as uh, a piece of sand from a beach, which is fascinating. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they are obtainable, but not from grocery stores in the U.S. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, so we have a bunch of little pieces of mustard seed so that kids can see the mustard seed and think, like, how incredible that something this small that you can barely see can can grow and flourish and what that means. And we have to have lots of them in there so they can see any of them at all, because if you had just one, you wouldn't even be able to see it. Uh, so... There are, there are other, you know, many, many presentations, but that's just kind of a sampling of the kinds of things that you'd find in there. And so you say that in, in that level one atrium, which is, you said, three to six-year-olds. Mm -hmm. um, so you have these items, though, but uh, first off, to, be, to clarify for those who are listening, mm -hmm. are the items like the vestments and the chalice, are they, are they blessed items or are they okay to have in the atrium? That's a, that's a great question. Yes. Yeah, so let's talk about the items. Um, they're, they're not typically blessed items. No. So they are, um, kind of miniatures basically of what you might see in different sacred settings, because again, it's very important, um, in an atrium as in a Montessori classroom to have everything be, um, manipulable for the child. So to be the appropriate size, to be, um, something that they can, see and inspect and and be around in a way that makes sense for their for their age um so all of the all the furniture in an atrium for instance is meant to be child size now there's some variation in that because also it can be very expensive to create an atrium that has everything perfectly done right but but the idea that that we're all striving toward is to have it all be as accessible to the actual child as possible um, because it's not about the adult right nothing in the atrium is meant to be just a prop for an adult to give a lesson, it's all, every single object in there is meant to be used by the child and for the child. Um, that being said, you will see a lot of really breakable and really sacred kinds of things in there. Um, we use glass on purpose, for instance. Um, and, and that goes better than you might think, interestingly, uh, because built into the curriculum also is this stage of teaching the children and, and teaching ourselves as well um, how to be focused and careful and reverent um, with one another, first of all, but also with the objects in our environment. Um, so something important and beautiful, I think, about Montessori education, which transfers to Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, is this sense of um, care of environment which granted, if you've ever seen my office, you think you don't care about care of environment. It's not the thing I'm best at in life, but it's very, it's, but it's very important, right? Because it shows, um, it shows our, our gratitude for what we've been given and it helps us to live together in a respectful way. So um, there are whole lessons and whole groups of weeks, in fact, that are dedicated to learning how to walk in the space in a respectful way, learning how to speak in the space in a respectful way, um, learning how to treat and carry the objects. And a lot of that also has to do with uh, cultivating trust and self-respect in the child. 
you know, when a three-year-old learns that they can very carefully carry and handle a glass object, how much more trust and, and self-respect then does that child have for themselves knowing that um, these things these things matter and have been prepared lovingly and that they then have the power to steward them well. Uh, that's really a beautiful thing to see when kids notice that they can in fact have ownership and stewardship um, over a space which extends beyond that, of course. So it's also meant to cultivate um, an environment where we can listen to God together. This idea that it's really hard to hear that still small voice of God when we're always in a hurry, when we're you know, throwing things, running around. Um, not that you know running around is a bad thing, not that having a full schedule is a bad thing, but that we might need some spaces that are set aside to listen a little bit more closely and to move our bodies and our minds with a little bit more intention. So what we teach in the atrium then is, um, you know, to some extent conceptual, but through material things, but it's also teaching a rhythm of life and a way of being that opens us to prayer as well. I really sense too that it, it, it strikes a balance from what you're describing mm -hmm. between child-led exploration, child-led understanding, while also having like guidance by adults to foster that reference, to foster that gentleness, that awareness. Um, but either way, it's full of intention. Yes, yes, certainly. It's, it's very intentional. Um, which I think is one of its biggest strengths. And yeah, as you say, it's we see the adult's role as being um, the one who prepares the environment, the one who sort of creates the space for the children to have appropriate materials to choose from and creates the space for the child to meet God on their own. Um, we don't see it as our job to just, you know, pour information into them. Not that information isn't important, but that we aren't the teacher ultimately. We say Christ is the teacher, right? We're all there to listen and to learn from each other. Um, and again, just as in a Montessori environment or just as in parenting when we do it well, right? You offer choices that you're okay with. You know, the the, <laughs> the goal is, is not to just offer any choice then be like, oh no, what did I let them choose? <laughs> to try to offer choices where any of any of them would be appropriate and, and things that would facilitate growth and a good day, right? So in the atrium, there are, uh, one, one of the rules in fact, is that you can only work with a material after you've had that presentation. So there may be older kids in a space because it's a multi-age classroom, classroom, atrium. Um, there may be older kids in the space who have had more presentations. So when it comes to work time, they have more possibilities. They have more choices because they know how to use those properly. Um, whereas a three-year-old coming into the space, uh, it, it may take longer for them to have more, more options for which works to do. Um, so there's kind of a privilege in that, but the, the idea there is that all of the works have a meaning and kind of a right way to do it. And, and so, you know, as much as we do emphasize exploration and creativity, 
there's also an appropriate way to use certain things. And so, um, so there's that, again, just as in Montessori works, you don't necessarily need an adult to be right next to you while you're doing all of these works because there's something sort of built into them that tells you whether you're doing them appropriately or not. And so that builds independence in the child to learn that they're doing it properly because it works or it doesn't work when they do it. Um, but again, there's that sense of attention or a balance, as you say, between the self-directedness of the child and then the appropriate use of the space that's sort of set by the adult. So to wrap up, so many people who are listening to this episode are very often music ministers or liturgical ministers. Mm -hmm. And so from your experience with Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, how can this type of um, faith formation, religious education, how can it benefit us as church in the next generations to come? Yeah, that's a big question, but there are <laughs> several ways, though, that, that come to mind. I mean, for one, you know, Amanda, you and I were talking earlier about how uh, how musicians and religious ed directors and, and all sorts of people can maybe work together more. And one of the so this is just, you know, small scale, not necessarily wide ranging cosmic church world, but um, but one of the main one of the main hopes of Catechesis of the Good Shepherd that one of my formation leaders, Celine Mitchell, always used is um, to lead into greater participation in the liturgy. So almost every single one of the, of the presentations has as an indirect aim, greater participation in the liturgy. Because again, if you're setting an altar table, you know then what's happening there. If you, for instance, um, song, song is a big part of the atrium. It's part of our prayer. If we use songs that the kids are hearing when they go to mass, they make that connection between what happens in mass and what happens in atrium. Um, so the more we can, we can be using these connections in a helpful way, the more I think things like liturgy will actually have resonance in kids' lives. It won't be just something to sit through, but something they can participate in and, and derive meaning from. Um, but then I think even on a, a different kind of scale, something that's really significant to me about Catechesis of the Good Shepherd and about Montessori methodology as well, um, is this sense of humility and respect at the same time. I think that so many of us grew up in a church where maybe we, even if people were very nice to us, we were seen as like just kids, right? Like the kids get this thing and then the adults go do this real thing. Um, and in Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, the idea is adults and children are in that space on equal footing to a, a, a large extent. And that doesn't mean the adults are not treated with respect. That just means that literally everyone is meant to be treated with respect, right? There's no such thing in an atrium space as being just a kid. Um, we are meant to, to believe that the Holy Spirit is working through the children just as much as the Holy Spirit is working through the adults in that room, and sometimes more so, right? And so there is a really important humility that is required of, of being in an atrium space, especially as an adult, um, to really be open to what the child is bringing and that when we need to redirect what the child is doing, um, that we're doing that for the child's sake and for the sake of the community and, and not for our sake because of some specific 
um, control that we feel we need to have, you know? So um, that seems very important to me to recognize, you know, if we say we're a church that recognizes the dignity of all people, but then we still have these kind of implicit caste systems based on all kinds of things, right? And age, on race, on gender, lots of things. Uh, that does not help us to be the body of Christ. If we can learn to really very genuinely revere one another and the practices we have and the programs that we do and the liturgical and paraliturgical encounters we have, um, that seems to me very, very significant uh, for really appreciating the gifts we all bring as that body. Well, I will put more links as well about Catechesis of the Good Shepherd in the show notes of this episode. So if you're listening and you want to learn more, um, you even want to maybe start a, a conversation with your DRE, um, or maybe it's in place in your church already and you never really knew, hey, what, what's this going on? Um, we hope this gives you a little bit of insight. Um, but I want to thank you, Holly, for your time and your insights today with us liturgical ministers and music ministers who are listening on Ministry Monday, and thank you. And may I be the first of many to wish you a good beginning of the year for religious ed, if I remember correctly. I think you're, coming you're yes. it's coming up, huh? Yeah. Yeah, thanks so much. <laughs> it was great to talk to you. Thank you so much again. Thanks so much to Holly for her time today. For more information on the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, check out the show notes of this episode at ministrymonday.org. The recording of Oh God, You Search Me was produced by Oregon Catholic Press, and today's theme music for Ministry Monday was produced by Aaron Schaus. Today's episode of Ministry Monday was produced by me, Amanda Bruce. That's it for today. With the Spirit's gifts empowering us for the work of ministry, Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and we'll see you back here next time on Ministry Monday.